0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, it is Earth Day. Celebrate with us and thank you for taking action. You're a climate avenger, a solar warrior, and we salute you. Well, well, welcome, Solar Warrior, to another episode here on Suncast. If you're tuning in for the first time, You're tuning into a second part episode of my conversation with a friend and industry colleague and leader and mentor, Rob Jetty. I would encourage you to go check out part one of this inspiring conversation with Rob so that you can capture more of the backstory, his origin of how he actually made his way into solar and the role he has now with DSD Renewables. Today, we're gonna dig into the second half of the conversation, more about what inspires him how he made the eventual pivots, how DSD is differentiating itself in the marketplace and why Rob has decided to take this commanding role and the commercial industrial sector of the solar industry is the place where he wants to hang his shingle, flies flag. If you are at all curious about the career of a true maverick, a true apprentice, as I said before, who has found his way to a master in operations of the solar construction industry well you're in the right place and if you like these kinds of conversations well I would encourage you to subscribe and tune in to more than 360 other conversations with entrepreneurs entrepreneurs and climate advocates here on Suncast at mysuncast.com you can find all the show notes social media links and so much more that we post every single week behind the episode but for now get ready to tune in to this part two of a conversation with my friend Rob Jetty right here on Suncast. Rob I am really very interested in learning more about the current venture that you are a part of. I might call it an adventure but you've been on a lot of adventures in your career and I know that uh, you're an infinite learner so I'm keen to hear how DSD first came into your field of view, why you decided this is the logical next step in your career. A little bit about the whole process of taking an entity and birthing it out of a big organization like GE.
1: Sure thing. So Eric Sheeman reached out to me when I was at EDF and uh, asked me to uh, have lunch with him in Oneonta, New York, which is halfway between where I live and and, uh, Schenectady really because he was looking to network with people. I didn't know that it was a job interview at the time. He was looking to network with folks in the industry. Did you know Eric? How did
0: you know Eric? Is that, was that something someone else? I did not know Eric at all. How did he get a hold of you? Why would he why did he call you? He reached out to me. I believe he sent me
1: a note on LinkedIn or someone gave me or gave him my cell phone number. He had mentioned at the time that a mutual friend had recommended that uh, he have a conversation with me. It's really sort of the extent. If you're that
0: mutual friend and you're listening, please call Rob and let him know because he'd like to thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, so we had a, we, we hit it off,
1: uh, you know, Eric and I hit it off right away. Um, and we continued to have conversations, you know, that were more focused around what it is he was looking for. he, weighed out his his plan, his vision, which I think he had had for some time at that point, spin the solar division out of, of General Electric, and to go seek additional financing necessary to build an IPP business in the solar space, specifically focused on DG, you know, as we are. And it was asking, essentially, uh, you know, when it got down to the formalities of of joining General Electric um, and, and applying for the job, but in short, was looking for a right hand man, if you will, to sort of run the day to day, help put processes in place, um, look at the organization from an outsider's perspective and, and leverage my experience, push the organization forward, sort of knowing that that was the end goal to spin the business out of General Electric and, and find um, new equity to back you know, our desires.
0: How many people were working with Eric inside of GE on the solar plan at that point? I believe there were about 50, around 50 to 60 at the time that I joined. That's amazing. I mean, 50 to 60 is a huge solar company, but it's a small division at GE.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's right. Which was, I think, part of the desire, you know, quite frankly, Eric had been able to build an organization, you know, within GE uh, you know, built some incredible value did some you know, wonderful proof of concept, you know, projects, uh, but GE fundamentally didn't have any interest in owning those projects. So they were, you know, after the initial group of uh, projects that they had done together with, with GE Finance. So they uh, were a flip developer selling projects to third parties, uh, you know, at the time that I joined.
0: So a lot of folks get confused as well, right? GE is one of the most well-known manufacturers in history. And GE's solar products, mostly their inverters, have had a fabled past in the industry as well. What it sounds like, and this is what I remember of the sort of the GE iteration, is that it was realized that GE's position in the marketplace, namely through GE finance, would allow for GE to basically balance sheet projects and make some profit on carrying the projects, not necessarily finding homes for their equipment. Is that right?
1: That's correct. I think the desire had always been there that you know event, eventually, perhaps the solar division could be a home for their products. But you know, fundamentally, our business and how we generated you know, revenue for GE was quite a bit different from the core uh, focus of of GE in manufacturing, and it, it made sense that we you know sort of found a different parent for that reason. Yeah,
0: help me understand. The opportunity that you, Eric, and the team saw in distributed, when you say DG, distributed generation, typically that's under 20 megawatts if you're at the utility scale sort of common nomenclature. But most of us think in C&I of let's call it 500 kilowatts up to maybe 5 megawatts to 20 megawatts on the large side for portfolios. But tell me about the opportunity that or weaknesses that you saw in the distributed model up to now that you hoped hope to fix with DSD.
1: There's a couple of things one of them, you know, kind of gets into our secret sauce. There's, there's something in particular that's special about what we do. And maybe we can go into that into a minute and I can answer your, your question more directly here. But I think that the opportunity to be able to focus on the entire life cycle under one roof, which has been attempted in the past by some other organizations but in my opinion, often gets distracted and and one sort of pillar of the business ends up really kind of taking over the others, whether it's through the sort of creation of, of yield as a financing mechanism that I think you know some companies in the past have have, have struggled, you know, struggled with and, and ultimately that kind of led to their downfall. Here was an opportunity to Really, in the words of my grandmother, to stick to your knitting and really focus on process of you know every aspect of the experience for the customer to own those assets in the long run and manage them and focusing on how we do that would be managing the lowest overhead that we can't possibly can while at the same time you know providing. The experience that's required for our customers, a level of uh, management of the execution of those projects that has the 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 lightest touch, if you will, that we can sort of possibly have while still executing those projects in the lowest cost way that you you can in the in the market, having to balance those factors. I think Eric and our CFO Greg, Greg Fabso had really spent a lot of time, you know, prior to me joining, uh, thinking about their plan for for that execution. Um, and it's a testament to them in the preparation that they they did that laid the foundation for that that spin up to happen. It's kind of looking at it retrospectively. It's kind of amazing how quickly it actually occurred. I joined in September of 2018, and by, by the summer of 2019, we had closed on the equity investment from BlackRock of 80 percent into the business. So you know it was maybe a r- roughly nine-month time frame from my joining to that plan being fully executed. And all the dominoes, you know, have we've been very, we've worked very hard. Um, a, a lot of people have worked very hard in this organization, but there's been a tremendous amount of focus under Eric's leadership on on executing, you know, those the dominoes necessary to, to stand this business up quickly uh, to, to achieve our goals. So, you know, everything kind of felt continued to fall into place. You know, I think we built out the team. After I got settled in, um, understood you know the resources that were here identified what you know changes we would want to make, what the organization would look like in the long run, creating an outline at a high level of, of process workflow for the life cycle of the projects, and how you know start defining what roles and responsibilities would look like across the organization, you know even before a lot of those functions were you know entirely built out so then we we sought out people who other leaders that either were promoted from within or we hired externally to come in and and fill those leadership roles that we needed across the organization and
0: and then you know continued to build out the team across the board you mentioned bringing blackrock on how long was the blackrock conversation in play what can you tell me about the blackrock backing financing ownership stake and how much freedom to execute on that on that capital do you have
1: So the amount of time we hired a third party to manage the sort of sale process if you will of of GE Solar to to bring in I mean what we were offering I think was a bit of a unique opportunity for another investor at the time you know not just from the organization that we had built but I think that The fact that we were coming out of General Electric got, you know, some people's attention as a household name. It it kind of helped, you know, with the story to that end of what you know people were eventually investing in. We had quite a few, we were fortunate to have quite a few offers, went through, you know, management interview process and you know, down selection with a few. Really, I think for us as a management team, BlackRock was was probably our favorite. From the beginning, all of us kind of agreed on that. There was a an alignment there in the team specifically, and their understanding of our business, their interest in you know how they wanted to help us grow. There's just there was just a lot of alignment that seemed rather natural uh from the beginning for us. So we were very very happy when that uh, when
0: that came to. Are you liberty to talk about how much? The entity sold for, or what Blackrock stake is, or anything like that
1: I don't think that I am I don't know if I'm allowed to disclose all of those exact details. I mean their stake their stake was at the time they took an eighty percent you know stake in the new entity because essentially DSD was born out of this transaction. you know it didn't exist before it was part of Gen- general
0: electric so right. so eighty they bought eighty percent of it from G e and GE kept a 20 percent stake okay.
1: That's right. But that's actually since changed. And uh, this uh, last year, BlackRock uh, exercised on the additional 20% and actually bought GE out entirely. So entirely a BlackRock asset. So we are now entirely a BlackRock company. That's right.
0: How much, again, back to the original question, freedom in deploying capital do you all exercise as a BlackRock entity?
1: They give us a very large amount of freedom, really. Uh, they, I think, we have struck a really excellent balance of their oversight and uh, assistance, you know, in managing the business and, and helping us grow. Um, but they are not, you know, it's not a. I wouldn't consider it a heavy touch, you know, based on my past experiences of having, you know, large publicly traded parent companies. <laughs> They trust us to run the business and we obviously review, you know, our our metrics closely and and how you know how we're doing to meet their expectations, communicate on that heavily. But as far as making, you know, operational decisions and, and in the projects and whatnot, we we essentially have sort of full autonomy so long as those projects meet the kind of rather basic parameters, the intended focus of our, our business and distributed generation.
0: Now, you've worked for a lot of different types of entities, European, American, large, small. As the COO now of DSD with Black, as a BlackRock entity, how would you compare the overall oversight from the investment committee perspective? You know, I've been a developer uh, at Connergy and at Trina where it could often be very, very difficult to get buy-in on a project, even when the investment thesis was presumably met. How do you feel right now as someone who has been through this game a number of times, obviously you're not going to incriminate DSD. I'm just curious what that experience is like with now you're with another publicly traded company.
1: Honestly, it's, it's kind of, it's a breath of fresh air, you know, investment committee at a project level is something that we do internal to DSD. So uh, we, we are able to make those decisions, you know, again within the parameters that, you know, are, are agreed to with the board at BlackRock. We make those project level investment decisions on our own. You feel like you're more
0: efficient than maybe in the past you were?
1: Much more efficient than than anywhere that I've, you know, that I've worked in the past, you know, as it relates to that for sure.
0: So how common do you think these kinds of transactions are going to be moving forward where large public entities or large private equity firms are going to continue to kind of gobble up these assets and create these really deeply funded public finance vehicles for distributed solar, not just utility? Is this a trend?
1: I've been so heads down admittedly Nico in the last few years building out DSD I don't spend a lot of time asking those questions of myself as as maybe I should you know I think we've I'm, I'm definitely far more in the weeds on the execution side of the business than I am thinking as strategically as I should at times but about our you know I, I'm more focused on our future which looks quite bright you know I, I would say that I think that it is a trend to some degree uh, you know I think for me and part of why I came to DSD is doing you know what's often been referred to as C and I or you know this this distributed market that you mentioned in the 500 kW to let's call it 20 megawatt size of projects in, in my mind and in, in the course of my career is something I've considered a bit of the last frontier so I think the utility scale side of the industry has gotten incredibly mature, uh, highly competitive, is a rinse and repeat business. The residential financing side of the, of the industry, same thing. Very much uh, a rinse and repeat business, whether it's cash deals or the scaling of, of third-party financing through folks like SolarCity and Sunrun. So I think that those two things have kind of figured themselves out, if you will, no one has really scaled and sustained a business that has stayed focused, you know, on the DG market. And that that challenge and having the opportunity to do that was actually one of the most attractive things to me in coming here.
0: I have a few questions, but I also want to challenge the idea that no one has done it because I feel like Green Skies <laughs> like did it really well. They did. They did do it pretty well. Yeah, I know. I think they did. Yeah. I don't think these guys is alone. What I think is this is an unsexy part of the market that's super hard, and that very few with your level of deep understanding and savvy have applied efficiency and scope. And it's because of what I want to ask you. We often see these huge financing projects or huge financings of companies beget a large project focus model, right? Because it's more efficient. You look at S Power, AS's acquisitions. A distributed team out of Denver, recurrent, being acquired by Canadian. It's so common because if it's all the same process and you want rinse, repeat, why would you apply the same amount of brain damage to five megawatts that you would 500? So with that in mind, how do you see the story within DSD and backing by BlackRock and deep operational expertise of your team changing that narrative?
1: You know, the most important thing uh, when looking at CNI projects and in this market segment is that they actually offer an opportunity for much better uh, returns in the projects themselves for the long run than utility scale.
0: Yeah. Can you give scope, though, for someone who maybe doesn't understand the difference in returns?
1: Sure. So we measure that measure it in terms of net present value,
0: you know, to the organization.
1: Uh, Currently, in terms of meeting our goals, but essentially the value that you're building in the assets that you're owning, the return on the capital that you've deployed into those projects, uh, the equity capital that you've deployed into those projects. So that return in in the DG space, if done well at a project level, is can be significantly higher than what you're seeing. In either the residential, which has, you know, a different set of inherent risks versus the utility scale market where those, you know, those, those margins tend to be much thinner.
0: For the finance folks out there, we're talking about return on equity, not necessarily return on project uh, assets, return on equity invested.
1: Our focus and our challenge then is managing the business, you know, back to some of my earlier comments in, in a way to capture that greatest amount, amount of value. By having, you know, perhaps a lower overhead uh, to run our organization than maybe some others have in the past and a more efficient means of being able to uh, control costs for building those projects. That's another area that helps facilitate that higher level of return.
0: You mentioned something that I think is core to some of the value that I see in your team. I know that you've been mentored by guys like Randy Corey. What do the influences from prior roles, mentors like Randy help bring for you in terms of what you're deploying? Where, have you, where are you modeling success or avoiding failures that you've seen in other models?
1: I would say I spend a lot more time, you know, obviously in how we're building the organization, focusing on the models of success. And we talked about recurrent as a model for me you know and really the first time that that anyone had really laid out the project life cycle in detail you know and, and as, as I mentioned previously that was something that I, I learned from Sheldon so I've I've kind of carried that mantra through here ensuring quite frankly that people understand that picture and what that life cycle looks like and what their role is in it which was very much a theme uh, in the early days of of building recurrent you know, and then as we've we've scaled, there was a, scaled this business. There was a conversation that I had with with Randy Corey. You know, I was, I was fortunate to bend his ear at a conference we were both at uh, a few years ago, a uh, years back, and and asked him. You know, what were the what were some of the core elements in his mind that made him successful in scaling S Power operationally? And he really lent it to. Having different systems, different software platforms that managed different aspects of the business, but they had stitched together to talk to each other to increase the efficiency and, and automation and throughput of the organization. Because once you start doing, you know, high volume, high velocity business, everything becomes about the data and uh, being able to look at it in real time um, is is of critical importance. So that was a big, you know, a a big theme that that I had taken from the conversations uh, there. And and quite frankly, something that we're still working on. I mean, we have some great systems, we've built some, you know, built out some excellent functionality in our platforms, and are are now in a phase of really trying to focus on how those systems are, are working together.
0: Back in February, fellow solar warrior Ravi Mickelson revealed in episode 345 that the world's top banks funneled nearly 2 trillion dollars into fossil fuels since the Paris Accord signing, despite their lip service towards climate and renewables. If that gets under your skin as much as it did mine, then let Ravi's fast-growing fintech banking platform Atmos help you align your purpose with your pocketbook, your cause with your cash. And you can know that it's never supporting interests or industries misaligned with your personal mission. Start your financial journey at joinatmos.com forward slash suncast. Hey, by now I'm sure you've probably heard about our mission-minded program, getting your dream job in clean energy in 12 weeks. Our current cohort is giving us great feedback and kudos, I might add, as they go through the material and our coaching calls. You can see more about what this program looks like at suncast.vip. That's our brand spanking new webpage to talk about the mission minded program. That's also where you can send friends, family, neighbors, colleagues that you know who might need a little extra help, a little guidance to find that dream job in clean energy. Our mission minded program cohort is ongoing right now. We are taking a waiting list for our next cohort I'd encourage you to do two things one send anyone you know that might be interested two, those of you who are so inclined please go check out suncast.vip and email me nico at mysuncast.com you mentioned before and I don't want to let you off the hook here because you offered what's your secret sauce
1: (laughs) our secret sauce really lies in what we do with canopies and, and carports I think we refer to them as the the as canopies internally, um. But what I'm talking about are often referred to in the industry as carports or garage top canopies. So think of parking garages, and you're covering the roof above the cars on the top of the parking garage. We do. I would venture to guess the largest percentage of those types of projects, if you were to look at anyone's sort of pipeline of work that they accomplish in a in a year uh, amongst our competitors we probably do the largest percentage of those types of installations than anyone else it's it's generally hovering around forty percent of the projects that we build are those types of of systems the reason that we're successful at it is because we engineer them structurally uh, internally uh, to our organization and have them uh, have them built for us so we're we're essentially cutting out the middleman in most cases, as it relates to our competitors, because they're sourcing a canopy solution, you know, a third party vendor who's engineering it and having it manufactured. We are incredibly cost competitive versus the rest of the market in that space.
0: Fantastic. I did not anticipate that you would say your approach to carport canopies. How much of the overall DG sort of CNI market, do canopies currently occupy versus kind of where that industry or market's going?
1: I wish I knew that answer. We've tried to figure, I've seen that sliced and diced a couple of times uh, since I've been here. I don't know what the sort of market potential is for it, but I think it's been an area in our, in our market segment that has been clearly largely ignored because of its complexity.
0: It's hard. All the manufacturers I know either have a separate business or they get acquired by SunPower or the like, you know, so it sounds like you guys have a homegrown product. My other question, when I think about the value of someone listening to this, wondering, you know, if there's an opportunity to work with DSD or how they would learn from you is, does that mean that, you know, canopy manufacturers don't have a long-term business because big companies like DSD are just going to do it themselves and they're not looking for branding. They're looking for a, a replicatable product. And as part A and B, does that also mean that if you're developing a project and contemplating canopies, either you're going to compete with DSD, who probably has a better price, or you can somehow partner with DSD?
1: I do think that third-party canopy manufacturers are always going to have their place in, in some way. People are going to want to own these systems outright, not just have them financed by folks like us. So there's certainly a market segment there that will, I think, always continue to exist. And- our competitors will continue to, you know, do business with them. But I do think that we come into this particular portion of the CNI market with a very powerful position and, and offering. So my intent is to become the market leader in providing canopy and carport solutions to the U.S.
0: And predominantly to large scale US retail clients like major developers of large shopping centers and large retail clients like car dealerships and things like that is that kind of the the segment that makes the most sense or
1: yeah that's exactly right the uh i, I don't know to the extent that i'm allowed to to use their names so so i won't in this segment but some of our you know biggest customers are leading retailers in the United States who see an incredible amount of value in what we're providing them with this type of solution in that it's even not only is it meeting their needs and goals for their environmental footprint, but it's actually offering a differentiation in the customer experience that they're able to provide for their customers because they have shaded parking.
0: I mean, look, this is something you and I've seen as kind of one of one of the holy grails, but really hard to capture since 2006, eight, ten, when we were working with Baja and uh, RBI had their first canopy product that was priced out of the market. And like so many people, right? The Solaire had great, beautiful product that Johnson & Johnson notably put at their headquarters. And then they got acquired by SunPower and you can only get it through SunPower. I see this as sort of this revolving door in the CNI space that people try to do canopies. They're too expensive. The customers either don't want to buy it because it's too expensive or because it turns out the real estate uh, is too valuable where they could otherwise put a parking garage in 10 years if they wanted to, and they lose that optionality if they bury posts in the ground. I heard that from a lot of hospitals when I was trying to sell. Look, we get navel gaze on this part of the piece for a while, you and I, uh, waxing uh, prophetic about that niche. But it's really interesting for me. Thank you for sharing. The Part of the secret sauce is how you're saving money. And in particular, we'll note that You guys are really, you know, a big market for you is Northeast and New York is an absolute, like it's gangbusters right now for canopies for a lot of reasons. So that makes a ton of sense for me why that would be a core piece of your business. How would you explain to your kid's class if he brought you to school of like, hey, this is explain your job to uh, you know, a sixth grade class that's trying to figure out what daddy does? How do you explain the role of a CEO in that terms? Like, How would I explain it to my 10-year-old?
1: In the simplest sense, when people ask me that, you know, I, I don't know that my answer is, is, is really all that well-suited for my son's classroom, but I mean, at, at the end of the day, I, I provide leadership to specific functions within, you know, within the organization on a direct basis in development engineering teams, construction, procurement, asset management. But the biggest part of my the you know the other large part of my job is I'm responsible for overall operational efficiency of the organization. So, helping figure out how all the teams in the organization can work together best and how we can have systems that allow them to do so and processes to do so.
0: Are there a set of core skills that you feel you've developed to achieve this role? Like when you think back over the last 15, 20 years, what are the non-negotiables that you had to develop to embody the role of COO? I think
1: part of what helps me be successful are just some of my core tenets to how I approach management generally which most importantly is related to having good leaders in the organization and then empowering them with the resources that they need to be successful. So I see my job as as a, actually a support role for the organization. My approach to management is to ensure that the people in my teams have the tools And the ability to be successful and make decisions on behalf of the organization really for themselves and and have the confidence to do so because their directives are clear. That's probably one of the most important things to me.
0: Yeah. So management skills, fundamentally to manage the construction team, you have to understand construction management and costing. Sure. Coaching, I presume to empower someone, you would need coaching skills. Are those things that for you have been OJT? Have you been through classes? Have you been mentored into some of this? How much of it is like you just had to go figure it out versus some of the organizations you worked for helped you along the path with very specific intentional programs?
1: For me, it's definitely definitely on the job training. And also, I think, as I mentioned earlier, having mentors that I call on for advice, right? And that's a huge part of what, Helps me, you know, do my job. It's it's not having all of the answers, but it's being a phone call away from the people that do. Uh, has been another sort of big focus of mine in in my career.
0: You know, when they were asking, I think it was Ford who got into kind of a pissing match with some journalists one day, and they were trying to poke holes in his understanding of the fundamental engineering of vehicles. So. After a couple of questions where he just felt a little flustered, he said, do you see this phone? I don't know the answer to any of the questions that you're asking, but I have 50 quick dial numbers to my top 50 employees that can answer this question in less than 30 seconds. That's how I run this business. I don't need to know what happens on line B. I need to know who manages the process for line B. Gosh, man. I mean, I think what you just said, I hope that if you're listening to this, you're just taking notes as well pause, like put a little bookmark on it. We need podcast apps that allow you to bookmark shit. It's just a golden takeaway. Uh, That's two now, at least for this episode, the ability to surround yourself with people who can get the answers for you or help you come to the right answer is way more valuable than feeling like you have all the answers. I mean, that is the answer for me of the biggest takeaways from important mentors, which is a question I often ask. Is there a a particular moment in your career where you look back and you think, I could attribute this moment for better or worse, you know, failure or success as a success marker or a turning point in my career.
1: I mean, I've been fortunate to have a few of them, you know, since really getting into solar back in 2002 that were, were pivotal. You know, we talked about the Ithaca bakery earlier was one going to work for Epuron. And, and Conergy was another big one uh, for me at the time. that opportunity to really get involved in doing the first wholesale power project, getting that exposure, really bringing my background to bear in development of a project, that was a huge turning point.
0: Do you think that some of the things in your career are outable? they're engineerable, or were they happenstance? And while thinking through that, what I want you to think about is, in that i mean is there any particular advice that you would have given yourself or that you'd give someone else who's thinking how do i actually level up in my career what should i be looking for
1: from my perspective i do think that there's sort of always an element of 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 happenstance in our lives but that said i do think there is a very large degree of credence that should be given to putting yourself in the right place at the right time. So, I do believe that that's possible. Advice that I would give uh, is really around, uh, you know, as we talked about this previously as well, I spent quite a bit of time intentionally cr- sort of crafting my experiences uh, and, and making them broad, right? So, I, I always wanted to understand as much as I could about the various corners of this industry didn't stay focused on one piece specifically. That's been, I think one of the things that's made me most successful and certainly continues to provide dividends in my current role, having that kind of background exposed to you know, all the different aspects of the, the value stack.
0: Can I pick your brain on a couple of kind of current <laughs> things that I think are, are pertinent to the CNI market? Do you think that electric vehicle integration, like fleet management, is going to uh, benefit renewables? And if so, how?
1: I think that it can. I think there's a lot of uh, good theory floating around about that topic right now. I personally think we're a little bit more far, we're probably a little further away from it than people would like. But I do I do uh, believe in the fact that the grid can become more resilient as we deploy more of these distributed type of resources and, and looking at electric vehicles and, and the deployment of storage generally throughout a more distributed grid um, offers a, potent, a, a, a paradigm shift in, in our relationship with electricity in our lives that could be
0: profound. Do you have a take on how storage will be deployed? Is it something that's going to be at a more building level, micro management level, rooftop even, or is, is it going to play a role in CNI?
1: I think it's definitely going to continue to play a role in CNI. I mean, we're seeing it already, you know, in the RFP space, in this market segment, it's asked for in almost every scenario. So I think that everyone is is looking to continue to evaluate its benefit for their business. I think that the market structure's in the states that we, you know, sort of rely on, uh, either at the state or ISO or RTO level, are, are not quite there to facilitate it as best as as they can. So that's where we need to continue
0: to see more work in the U.S. Are you more of a Tesla Cybertruck or a Rivian? <laughs> um
1: i I guess I'm probably a Rivian. Uh, um, I'm. I'm kind of a car nut, uh, oh. and um, I'm not crazy about the lines of the Tesla. So
0: that makes you um, uh, All right.
1: Just that's just me. I'm a little more
0: traditional. Oh, <laughs> fine. I love the Rivian. I think it is just absolutely a gorgeous vehicle. IPA or stout? IPA all the way New course.
1: England. Yeah. New England unfiltered without a doubt.
0: Absolutely. You're such a tradesman right there. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh man. The um, the journeymen are are, are are shouting their approvals. Um. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, are there any books that you've read that you want to recommend that for others who uh, do you gift books or anything? Are you a reader?
1: You know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a big reader as it relates to, you know, sort of business and, and, and improvement, to be honest. I, I definitely am more of a, a fiction reader yeah, uh, in, my, in my free time. But um, I would say one book that was meaningful for me uh, back in my more, trans- you know, transformative years uh, in college would probably be Earth and Mind by David Orr, which is a book that really talks about the kind of crossroads of education and the environment. Obviously, the environment is something that's that's always been important to me. But I think education is probably, at the end of the day, the most important thing we can focus on as a society. And we, we don't give it, generally, uh, don't give it the uh, level of importance that we should.
0: Is there a morning routine or any consistent habit, morning or night, that you practice that you feel like gives you an immense amount of, uh, of yield or result in your life?
1: I exercise, uh, every morning,
0: you know, I, I run every morning. It's like two, three miles or long runs. Uh, short. Yeah. Um, are you a no headphones or headphones kind of runner? I do
1: both depends on the time of year when it's cold. I'm indoors with headphones and, uh, otherwise I'm outside, but, um, yeah, that's important. Outside. I like to not have headphones on. Yeah. I like to. I live in a, a beautiful area, and I love to,
0: uh, you know, just run down the, the so country you're roads. Suncast in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. How can folks that want to get more of Rob Jetty connect with you? Where do you like to be found?
1: I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I use it as a tool, and have for a, a very long time um, in, in my career. So that's a that's an easy way to find me. I'm, I'm there largely because I'm. Uh, trying to figure out who the best person to talk to in a specific organization is, or I'm c- continually using it to build out my network of folks that I've, you know, that I've met or, you know, had the pleasure of, of working with and, and from a, as a recruitment tool.
0: What's your best LinkedIn tip or hack for those who don't use it as much as you do?
1: It's probably not for everyone, but I actually pay for a premium account. I feel like most people don't. The benefits of it are actually rather significant. Uh, have been rather significant for me professionally. I've actually uh, been in been in situations where I may have been up against a challenge in a very large organization, and that we're you know sort of dealing with in the day to day to push a project forward. And I've actually used LinkedIn successfully to send a message, you know, directly to management, even at the CEO level of some very large companies because of that premium account and actually gotten a response. So i found that to actually be a really kind of powerful part of that tool.
0: What Rob's referring to is in-mail, which you get uh, you get included in a premium account. I think 10, uh, I have the, uh, I use LinkedIn Navigator, Sales Navigator, which you get 25 in-mail, I think, and a whole bunch of other tools that are kind of CRM-esque. I have paid, I've been a paid I say this a bunch from Suncast, so some of you are shaking your head because here's Nico about premium again. I'm a huge advocate, just as you are. I genuinely believe that LinkedIn favors their premium users, and why not? I could be wrong about that. It doesn't matter if I am, but uh, I, like you, uh, have used uh, have used LinkedIn Premium to open doors that I didn't believe I would be able to open. I actually got my first consulting client through LinkedIn, and when I got that client. They paid me a thousand bucks, and at the time, I was like, "Man, I could pay for ten years of LinkedIn Premium with this." And that's what I did. I literally just like put it on auto pay and never. And every time I saw it hit, I'm like, oh, it's already paid for," you know. And that's how I think about it now. It's like the one client pays for a decade of LinkedIn Premium, so every other interaction for me is like super massive additional value. <laughs> Rob, let's uh, let's wrap. I'm so grateful for the gracious amount of time that you've given us. Uh, I'm sure by the time we get through this, this is a two-parter for sure. And it's worth both uh, listening to both parts. It's a, you've been really insightful in, in ways that I can't, I don't always get a chance to d- dive in with guests. I have one final question for you as we round out the interview. What one thing do you see happening in the market from your years of experience that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Could be for the year, could be for the decade.
1: I think that there is a very good chance that we'll see a major policy shift before the end of the year that will have a significant impact on our industry, being renewables, probably even solar-specific, based on you know the current uh, federal political makeup. That that would be my guess. I don't know. You know, I I don't know that I have anything terribly sort of insightful to say uh, about my crystal ball. I I tend to be a little bit more black and white uh, generally in in making big assumptions or grand visions of things. But my guess is based on history that we'll probably, probably see something like that.
0: Rob Jetty is the COO at Distributed Solar Development. Rob, always great to see you. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Been a real pleasure, Nico.
0: I really appreciate uh, you having me on. All right, Solar Warrior. Rob is uh, a good friend, and as you've seen over the last hour plus, such a giver. I hope that what he said has inspired you to think more critically about the skills that you are building in your career. Rarely have I had a guest who has gone so into detail about the intentional path that was trodden to get to where he's at. And categorically, Rob is a leader in the solar industry here in the United States and has put in the work. He's done the reps to earn the right to be there. If you would like to connect with Rob, obviously I would encourage you to do that on LinkedIn. If you just wanna grab some of the links and resources that we talked about in the episode, of course, you can go check out those highlights of this and every other discussion and the social media links, that book recommendation, and so much more at mysuncast.com. That is also where you can find out about programs like our Mission-Minded Coaching Program, which we are about to graduate our first cohort out of the 2021 group as we speak. And I would encourage you to check it out if you're in a career transition or if you're thinking of how can I level up my role in the clean energy industry? We are helping folks that are a few years maybe a decade or so behind rob but also folks that are at the same age and just trying to figure out how to move from another industry oil and gas and others into clean energy if that sounds like you go check out the work with nico button at mysuncast.com as well and uh, really really grateful for all of you who have tuned in yet again if it was your first time here i promise we are trying to take care of that investment of time that you've given us if you felt like it was a good investment please give us a rating and review inside itunes or whatever app you are listening to thanks once again to our amazing sponsors who help make this content free to you you can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor remember you are what you listen to so thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle